Great to see everyone here. We're continuing our series. <laughs> that was a strange opening. We're going to get into God's Word now, okay? And we're going to be talking about a living hope. And this continues as we move now into 2 Peter. So if you have your Bibles, open up to 2 Peter. It's towards the end of your uh, New Testament. And uh, I'd love to have it right in front of you so you can read it along with us. And as you're turning there, let me give you a little bit of picture of why Peter wrote a second time. He, uh, you know, they didn't have texting, they didn't have cell phones, they didn't even have snail mail. So this first letter probably took a matter of months to get to Asia Minor, to these churches. And remember, those churches were under severe persecution for their faith in Christ. And so he sent a very loving letter, letter in First Peter. But in Second Peter, it's got a bite to it. And it's got a bite to it because... There were false teachers who came in, and they were picking and gnawing away at the teaching that Peter gave in his first letter. They said things, one of the largest things was, well, I mean, it's been really long since Jesus uh, promised that he'd return, and he hasn't returned yet. So can you really believe Peter on this one? Is he really going to teach here? Do we really want to follow him? And so he basically called those who were faithful to continue being faithful. He called out those who were calling them away into false doctrines. And then he called those who had wandered away back in to get established into their faith. And so this is the reason for the writing of this letter. And it was done on a piece of leather or parchment. And uh, he had to keep his words few because paper was costly. The writing, that which was on the writing was costly. And so you don't get a lot of, hey, I hope everything's going well with you. It goes right into, if you take a look at, at uh, the end of verse 2 of chapter 1 of Second Peter, it says, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. And again, that's how he started First Peter. You remember that? Grace and peace be multiplied by you. But here he goes a little bit deeper and says, Through the knowledge, the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And so, with that, let's take a look at what he's calling them into and making them aware of. It says in verse 3, take a look at that with me. It says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertains to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us is precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers in, of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. My goodness, this is just stacked full of information that takes hours to unpack. I have just under now 30 minutes to kind of explain it. So I'm going to go with the larger things that this is saying. And we'll spend more time, maybe at another date, going into the deeper things of this. But first of all, we need to just be reminded of two things. Everything we need has been given to us. And everything we long for has been given to us in Jesus Christ. Church, that's an easy thing, easy thing to say. We just sang a song that says, I am who you say I am. Why do we need, why do we need to allow God to tell us who we are? Because we'll listen to the world around us and we'll compare ourselves to the next Facebook or Instagram post and we will always think there's someone better. There, we will always think that we're not enough. And, and then here, it's not just saying, I am who I say, uh, I am who you say I am. It's saying you have what God says you have. That's important. 
Because that's one of the greatest questions that plagues our minds as individuals, especially as adults. Do I have what it takes? Do I have what it takes to follow Jesus in my life? Is it all up to me just working my way into a deeper satisfaction and a deeper desire and a deeper joy and love of Jesus? Or is that something that God wells up within me and it's still his power? Is his power something that just saves me and says, okay, we'll see you when you die? Or is it a power that's alive and work in me right now? And I'm going to make the case that it is alive and work in you right now. You need Jesus to save you. You need Jesus to set you apart for good works. You need Jesus to secure you and to, to, to build confidence in you. That divine power is all his work. So let's just take a look at that. Everything we need, our first point, everything you need, God has already given to us in Christ. And so look at how this is built here. He says, his divine power <clears throat> has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. I'm going to divide this verse up into two major parts. First one is that it has given us everything, everything that we need for all things that pertain to life and godliness. That in order to follow Christ, God has already given that to us. We have everything we need. Now, as, as we look at this, there's something that we need to be reminded of. That it's, it's the work of Christ to restore us, restore his image back into us, and to reclaim his purpose for us. I don't know if you've ever seen um, the work of restoration of uh, like, like very old art. But uh, like I'll, I'll turn on the Discovery Channel or PBS. Hi, I'm Joe, and I watch it. And, and I'm just mesmerized by this. They find this old painting, and they kind of, you know, the artist, uh, not the artist, but the restorer goes, all the dust, and just a plume of garbage comes off of it. And he goes, yeah, there's something under there, and we must reclaim it. And then, doo, 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 reclaiming art, whatever the name of the show is. And, and they show him, uh, or her, taking cotton swabs with some chemicals that don't hurt the original image but take away all the grime around it. And it's just mesmerizing. I kind of watch it, and I'm just like this. And you may think I'm an art geek. I'm really not an art aficionado, but I love watching things restore. I just love that whole thing. I think it goes right to our hearts that we love. We love it when people restore. And the work of God in you is to do two things. He's to restore his image in you. Because when the fall hit us in Genesis chapter 3, sin came into our lives, and we've never been the same. And the image that we were created to project, to reflect in our lives, the image that God has crafted in us, which Genesis says, God created man is in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created in the image of God. Now, when the fall happened... That image was defaced, but it wasn't erased. And it's because of that that everyone, whether they believe in Jesus or not, has infinite value, worth, and dignity. So Christian, we have no right to go, I'm a Christian, you're not. I'm good, you're not. I'm in, you're out. We don't have that right to look at the rest of the world as we're superior. Frankly, I'm not any better than many people out in the world who don't even believe in Jesus. 
I'm not. I still need Jesus just as much today as I did the first day I met him. And I couldn't measure up to perfection. None of us can. That's why we needed Jesus to do that work for us. So it's not our work, and it's not by our accomplishment, or it's not something we deserve. It's by grace we've been saved through faith. And, and God is passionately committed to restoring that image in us. And then he wants to reclaim his purpose for us. So once he restores us, he wants to use us to reflect the image of God in this world. So that other people will look at you and how you treat them and how you respond to challenges and go, that looks like God. That looks like what God would do. That's godliness. That would, we see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. So God is passionately committed to doing that, to restoring. And I, just on the side note, I love that. Matter of fact, that's why I'm in ministry. Because I love this story just as I preach to get pictures of masterpieces that you all are. You all in the hands of Jesus as he's restoring you and making, him, making you look more and more like himself. And as you follow him and as you trust him, and he gives you everything you need for life and godliness. I just love to see that. I kind of, there's parts in ministry where I just stand like a geek looking at the work of God in my congregation, my family here. Because I love to see God just restoring you. That's one of the most joyful parts of ministry is to see God work in the lives of people. And everyone in here is a masterpiece that reflects him. And so he does that. How does he do this? He does it through what it says here, the divine power. That word for power there is a Greek word that says, it sounds like this, dunamis, power, dunamis. Sorry, I had to put the Greek, you know, flair on it there. Dunamis, we get the word dynamite from it. And it's not that dynamite encompasses the whole meaning of this word, but with dynamite, you have this small little package that that packs a huge punch. And, And what... What Peter is saying is, look, his divine power is in you, and it's working in you, and it will have a drastic effect on your life. And it's a power that God doesn't need your help on. It's a power that he will do. He will do. So it's not in you trying harder. It's you trusting in the power of God in your life. This dunamis is at work in you. Paul really develops the dunamis of God, the power of God. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 19 and 20, when he prays for the church in Ephesus, he says that God would show you the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. So look at the history of God's power. He said way back when Christ died, and he rose from the dead. What, what rose Christ from? The, the power of God. That same power, hang on to a church, that same power is alive and at work in you right now. It's a present angle of God's power. And that power, when Christ returns, will do a full and final restoration of your life. It's a past, it's a present, it's a future. So church, why would we not live in that power right now? Why would we go, ah, it's good. I'm in and I can just relax and let the world go around me. He's he's saying, no, right now you have this power at work. This same resurrection power that God moved through Jesus is alive and at work in you. Everything we need has been given to us. So let's move to that next phrase of this. It says, 
everything we need has been given to us through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. This is our side of the equation. It's not our side that, that does the work of God. It's our side that responds to the power of God. How do, we, how do we use this power? First of all, we know about it. And we lean in and we look to God in his word to teach us about this power. We become students of this power that's alive and at work in us. And we lean in and we learn and we grow in this knowledge of it. And we'll develop this because the typical word in Greek for knowledge is gnosis. Can you say that with me? All right, you're now all masters of the Greek knowledge. Okay, Greek, Greek language. But gnosis means a, um, information about. It means uh, knowledge about someone. But what Peter uses here is a prefix to gnosis. He calls it epigenosis. And it ultimately means a deep, a deep knowledge. A knowledge that is understanding. So you can know about God, but to understand God is a deeper level of knowledge. I love, one of my favorite passages in the whole Bible is Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 23. It says, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let he who boasts boast in this, that he, look at this, understands and knows me, that I'm the Lord. That I'm the Lord who practices loving kindness and justice on the earth. For in these I delight, declares the Lord. And so the whole picture of us is that we would know God and that we would lean into him. We would go deep. We wouldn't stay on the surface. We would go deep into him. And you can know about God, but here we're learning about, you know, not just about him, but you can understand him. You can, you can know the why. So any parents in the room, you could tell me, boy, when my child learns the why of why we don't or why we do, it's a game changer, right? If it's just don't do that and don't do that and don't do that, I mean, we're going to kill our kids with, with just a system of do's and don'ts. But if we go, hey, it's better that we don't do that because when you give a why to most children... <laughs> Sorry, no nudging of your child tonight. But when we give the why, they're going to be more likely to understand. And I think the same way is with the commands of God. When you understand a little bit why, when you practice the commands of God and you obey the commands of God, you're going to have experience in why. And you're going to see experiences around you of those who are not. And you'll see the why of that also. But this epigenosis calls us into a deeper knowledge. By the way, on knowing God, I love this book by J.I. Packard. It has over a million copies sold. And if you want to lean into the importance of knowing God and the passion to know more about God, to understand him a little bit more, read this book. It's a great read. Um, and, and I want to quote you two passages in this book. He says, What makes life worthwhile is having a big enough objective, something which catches our imagination and lays hold of our allegiance. And this... The Christian has in a way that no other person has. For what higher, more exalted, more compelling goal can there be than to know God? Church, God has revealed himself to us. He has. And he's given us his word to invite us into knowing him. Now, let's just admit that this is not everything there is to know about God. 
but it's that which he wants to show us. It's his revelation to us. I like what John says at the end of the book of John. He says, you know, there's a whole lot more about Christ. There's a whole lot more about him. And I suppose the world would not have enough books to hold if I shared everything about Jesus. It just shows the vastness of the mind of God in Christ. Um, But these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you would have life in his name. And so the scriptures draw us to lean in to know this God. And so I just want to encourage you right now, how are you growing in your knowledge of God? Because when you do, look at what Packer says. He says, knowing God provides at once a foundation, shape, and goal for our lives, plus principle of priorities and a scale of values. Once you become aware that the main business that you're here for is to know God, most of life's problems fall into a place of their own accord. And so if your goal is to know God, then whatever happens to you is an adventure to know a little bit more about God. It's so easy to go, well, I just don't want to know about that. I don't want to know why God would do this. It doesn't make sense to me. So we walk away when it doesn't make sense instead of leaning in. And all I'm saying is there's areas in our faith that our knowledge base has to grow. There's area in obedience to the Lord that our knowledge base must grow. Most of the Bible is a narrative of people leaning in and following or walking away from God. So it's put there for a knowledge base of experience that we can draw in and grow deeper. This is what God does when that happens. This is the heart of God. This is what pleases God. This is where God takes delight in. This is my worth. This is my value in Christ. The scriptures tell us that when we lean into the scriptures and learn about that. So we're called then to live confidently in knowledge and understanding of Christ. So let me ask you, how are you doing that? How are you growing in your knowledge base and understanding of God? How are you deepening in knowledge? The church in America, for the most part, does not read their Bible. Doesn't. And so they come to church and expect that in one hour they can know God and go and live the rest of the week for God. And the problem with that is it's just impossible for one hour to change your whole week. God wants a walk with you, a 24-7 walk, not a one hour a week. And I love getting together with you, and I spend most of my week preparing for our time together. But even my life can't be about this one hour only. We've got to be people who have an appetite for the knowledge of God. An appetite means that we lean in and listen to the voice of God in his word and we grow in what we know. You can't, you can't really love someone if you don't know someone. You can't really understand someone if you don't want to know someone. Knowledge moves to understanding. So let me just encourage you, if you're viewing your daily time with the Lord like you check the box and I got that done, turn the page, I want to encourage you, what if it is a discovery, an exploration, an adventure into the knowledge and understanding and a relationship with God through Christ. Because desire, when we desire to know someone, we move heaven and earth to make it happen. We do. We creep on Facebook. We get to know what happened. We go way back in their timeline to get to know them, right? And this is even before the first date. 
We'll do that. When we want to know more about someone, we'll Google. We become voracious in information. And we've never lived in a time where we can know more about other people. And I just want to put this forward. We've never lived in a time we can know more about God than, than how many people have written about it and how much scripture is placed right before us. We live at a time where it's not an issue of having it in front of us. It's in front of us. We just have to lean in. I like what Paul does when he looks at the knowledge of God. He's writing in Romans 9, 10, and 11 about the sovereign choice of God and God letting God be God in his life. And it's almost as if he's having this argument and he's talking about different things. And then we come to chapter 11, verse 33, and he goes, Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable are his ways. It's like he's walking down this path through the jungle, explaining the vastness of God's sovereign choice. And he comes upon the Grand Canyon. And he just goes, Oh, the depths and the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. So he's overwhelmed by this. That will happen to you when you lean into the knowledge of God. Because we can know a little bit right now, but throughout eternity, let me just put it to rest. Eternity with God in heaven will not be a bore. It will not be a terry cloth robe and a harp. It, throw that out. It's not going to be like that. It's just not. It's going to be unending joy with exploration, with adventure, with discovery with God. He will show us more and more knowledge And he will feed us that knowledge daily. And we will never be exhausted. We will never grow tired of learning more and more and growing more and more in our relationship with God. It will not be a bore. And it will take him eternity to continue to share his mind with ours. And we'll grow in that knowledge. But you know what? Peter's saying, don't wait until that happens. Don't wait till you die or Christ returns, whichever comes first, before you become knowledgeable about that. Grow in this grace. If grace and peace are going to be multiplied, how does that multiply? Through the knowledge of God. So lean in and seek after and grow in the knowledge of God. So let's look at verse 4, and we'll unpack some more in this passage. It says, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers in the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Here, it's not just everything we need has been given to us, but even everything we long for has been given to us in Christ. And here, it says that the goal here is that we could partake in the divine nature do you realize partaking in the divine nature was one of the, one of the things that, that Satan tempted Adam and Eve with in the garden? God didn't want you to eat out of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because when you do, you'll become like him. And so they went on it on Satan's plan rather than God's plan for their knowledge. And look what happened. The world has never been the same. We've never been the same humanity. And it's a, it's a condition of the fall that we've gone out on our own. And so here we're reminded that it's only through Christ that we become children of God. It's only through Christ that we become righteous before God. And we're to live. We're to live drawing on the power of God and then on the promises of God for us. Everything we long for, and look what it says, by which he's granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers in the divine nature. 
The power of God in Christ moves us from the outside to the inside with God, from stranger to family, from in despair to a living boldly with hope. And so, Christian, we're called to do that. We're called to live boldly in the promises of Christ. Of, of, of Christ. And so what are the promises? What are the promises of God? Well, some of them are that, that all you are and all you have is not something you do or you have. It's, it's, it's the gift of God to you. That all you need has already been done by Christ in you and for you. All you have to do is to receive the person and the work of Christ. That's by grace alone through faith, right? That's a promise of God. A promise of God is that it's only by grace through faith that you are saved and that you're set apart for God's purposes. The promises of God remind us that with Christ, we're never alone. We're always in. We're never apart from now on and through eternity. So live that you have the promises of Christ. They're in your life. You can live boldly with those promises. So let me just ask you real quickly, what do you long for? What do you long for right now? If you think just about this past week, what did you long for? I remember a 415 service. Someone yelled out in the balcony, warm weather. (laughs) I did too, but that's not enough for my soul. It's good for the body, but it's not good for the soul necessarily. Uh, What do we long for? See, I think we tend to long for too small of things. And what Peter is saying is, Ultimately, if your knowledge of God is growing, then you're going to long for the things that, that he reflects through your life. You're going to long for more of a relationship with him. As you know him deeper, you're going to grow in your love for him. And you're going to grow in your obedience. And as you follow him, he's going to just reflect more and more of who he is through your life. So it's like he's going to share more and more of who he is through your life. And so you can kind of do life with God. And, and as you live that life with God, you're going to show some godliness through your life so that people look at you and go, oh, that's what God meant when he was telling. That's what the scriptures mean when it talks about love. And so we're to live boldly in the promises of Christ. And so because of this, because that everything we we need and everything we long for has been given to us in Christ, for this very reason then, Peter says, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and with virtue with knowledge and with knowledge self-control and with self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. So it's kind of like Peter is talking about this, this knowledge of God that shows us the divine power that's in us. And then as we grow in knowledge, we, we live boldly then in the promises of God. And it's almost like he's showing the, the, these things just exploding in our lives. Look what he says here in verse 8. He says, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he, is, he was cleansed from his former sins. If you read the book of Galatians, Paul talks about the fruit of the Spirit, right? We could just go through love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. And then then these here, we just list them and and we get so many things. It's like the sun rises and we see the glory of who God is in these qualities when we live them out. 
and we show a greater and greater picture of who Jesus is in this world. We don't even know the full power of the sun. I mean, we can try to harness it with solar energy, but that just is such a small amount of power. But when the sun rises and it brings, hopefully, warmth, not tomorrow in Topeka, but it will bring warmth, warmth someday here, but when it brings warmth and it brings light, there's so everything benefits around it. And as you deepen in the knowledge of Christ and you live out the promises of God in your life, all these things just bloom. Virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. I, I just think I need to mention what these mean, okay? So virtue, virtue means an honorable, a life worthy of praise, of doing the right thing no matter the outcome. That's a, that's a virtuous person. Scriptures talk about a virtuous woman who follows the Lord no matter her circumstances. And women in the ancient world were most vulnerable, most vulnerable to rejection and, and uh, the lack of dignity. And here, a godly, virtuous woman follows the Lord no matter of the outcome. Knowledge. Knowledge is that second one. It's paired with virtue, and it's paired with virtue, I think, for this reason. Because I used to think that if people just knew about God, everything would be good. They'd, they'd follow him. But that's just not fully true. How many of you believe that it's wise and best not to spend more than you make in a month? How many of you do, would believe that? Okay, put your hand down, and I'm not going to ask you to hand put it up here. How many of you live on more than you make each month? Average American family, 104% of our income we spend. So we believe that that's a good, that's truth, right? That's best, that's wise, but in practice, we don't do that. That's why knowledge and virtue are paired together here. Because add to your virtue knowledge, he's stacking it. He's showing a chain, and we'll show that picture in a second. And then then knowledge, as we've talked about that, it's, it's to know God, not nearly about God or even about his universe or about his things that he's given you, but to know him and to keep that personal. And then secondly, self-control. This means the capacity to say no to ungodly passions and yes to godly desires. This means that we're awake and aware. It's like driving on a road. There needs self-control in driving that car. So you don't wander off looking at a bird and wander off the road. You, you, you turn, you make adjustments. That's all part of self-control in your following Christ. Steadfastness. Here's a definition I love of steadfastness. It's walking in the same direction for a long time, traveling a long distance. It means people can count on. Your behavior is predictable in the good way. That's steadfastness. And then there's godliness. And this means that your life reflects more of God than it does yourself. And you provide an image of who God is by how you treat others. And then you stack onto that brotherly affection. It's a family term of kindness, acceptance, and compassion. This brotherly affection was shown by Jesus to Peter, who denied him three times. And Jesus restores his purpose into Peter, saying, Do you love me, Peter? Feed my sheep, tend my lambs, tend my flock. You're in, Peter. Upon you I'll build the church. And then there's love. It's love because it covers a whole bunch of areas, right? And, and Jesus said, greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. So look at what it does. It's almost like there's a chain. And it's a picture of, of us really thinking about 
about not just knowing, but now practicing what we know about God. And as I've done some research on what, how leaders are developed and how disciples are made in the church, I've come across some research that has changed my mind totally about discipleship. In the past, discipleship used to be, let's do a Bible study, and you'll know this, and I'll just let you go. Goodbye. You know it now, so go and practice that. But discipleship really is not just content. Matter of fact, 10% of being a disciple is content. It's what you know. 20% is watching what you know, either good or bad. It's watching it in the lives of people you live with, or watching it in your friends, or watching it in the world around you, and synthesizing it with what you know. And then 70% is living it out. It's really following it. It's saying, God, I know who you are, and I'm going because of who you are, this is what I'm going to do in following you. It's because of what you've done for me that I will live in response to that. It's because you've forgiven me that I'll forgive my husband, right? And you live in response to what you know. That's how disciples are made. And so we, we need to think that what we know is not just something that's stagnant and sits in our minds. It's what we know understanding happens the other 90% of what we know. We begin to understand this really is true because we've tested it and we followed Jesus along the way. And so Peter's really going to build the case with these, these seven characteristics of what Christ has already given to us that he wants us to live in the reality of. He wants us to use what he's given to us. And he builds it that it's the chain. And a chain that one stacks upon the other. That's why he repeats each one with the next one. Because he builds the chain that they're all connected. And in life, we're only as strong as our weakest link. So here's how I want to close, just as we think about this. As you look at these seven values, these seven characteristics, which ones... Which one? And I guess I could look at it and go, I could choose probably four right off the top of my head. But I don't want you to get mixed up with four, just one. What's one right now that as you look at this upcoming week, you need more of? And that you already have, you just need to ask God and his divine power to work in your life. Maybe you're going through a difficult time. Maybe you've been struggling with an addiction and you need self-control. Maybe you've been struggling with forgiving someone who has wounded you or talked about you or had an angry post about you, and you, you, need, you need love to forgive that person. Maybe you just don't know a lot about God. You've trusted me to tell you about that. And you want to go and search the scriptures on your own. You want to grow in the knowledge. So pray that right now. So let's just take a moment, choose one of those, and just say real simply, God... I need more of that in my life. You've given it to me. Help me to live in the reality that it's, it's mine. And, and flesh that out. However you're going to do that this week, just ask him, and then I'll pray for us. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for, becom- for committing to recovering your image in us and your purposes restored in us through Christ. Thank you that these are already ours. We just have to learn how to live in the reality of them. So we, we need a clear mind to think through this. We need distractions to be taken away. And we need an appetite that only your spirit can create in us for more of you.
and less of ourselves. And so, Lord, thank you. You are our Heavenly Father who grants these things. These are good things for your children to ask for more of. So I pray that you would just add to each of your followers in this room more and more of knowledge and understanding of who you are. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.